Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. You will recall last week I was discussing with Emily Jane Fox, my co-host. We started to talk about the state of the Democratic Party in the Biden administration. It's kind of all anybody's talking about right now. I mean, every column you read in the New York Times is about the hand-wringing of the Democrats and the split in the party and what's going to happen. Is Biden up to the job? And, uh, you know, I think back a year ago where we were, we were in the middle of a presidential campaign. Uh, everybody was freaking out about Trump and the news cycle seemed to be about four seconds long. Do you remember? It was just like news piece after news piece. And now the news cycle seems to have slowed down mercifully, but it's sort of festering on this issue of the Democrats and what are they going to do. And so today I have brought on somebody who's going to be on the front line of that question, Matthew Dowd. Matthew Dowd, former campaign strategist for the Bush administration, later left the Bush administration, split with Bush, became a prominent political analyst. Maybe you remember him from ABC News. You probably have seen him quoted here and there. I quoted him, I'm sure, at one time or another when I was at New York Magazine years ago. And uh, now he's running for lieutenant governor in where? Texas. Texas. Welcome, Matthew Dowd. Great to be here. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you're. I'm seeing you in a way that uh, our listeners won't, but you've uh, got a uh, the Lone Star State Texas flag right behind you. Uh, you're getting geared up to run for office. Is this your first time running for office? Am I correct? First time I've ever run. I've always worked on campaigns, but or talked about campaigns, but never run. Yeah, well, you're picking quite a time to do it because uh, I don't envy you. Let's just put it that way. Just going into the maw of this current uh, kind of political world we're living in. But um, so we've been talking about Texas maybe for the last four or five episodes on here. We've had we had Julian Castro on. We had um, Wendy Davis to talk about the abortion um, law. And just like we can't quit Texas because Texas seems to be a bellwether, a blueprint, uh, you know, People are saying it in every column we're reading now. It's where uh, the country might be headed, right? Uh, some sort of canary in the coal mine, but uh, we hope not. So, you know, first off, let's just start on the small, you know, granular level that a lot of people, well, it's not granular to you, but lieutenant governor you're running for. Greg Abbott is the current Republican governor. And next year, he'll be running against some Democrat or possibly he'll be knocked out by another Republican nominee. But what does the lieutenant governor do in Texas? What is the job? Um, it's a great question. And because it's different than what most people in most states uh, would be aware of. Um, I worked for the last Democratic lieutenant governor, who was Bob Bullock, uh, and ran his two campaigns and worked in the office. The lieutenant governor is an incredibly powerful position in Texas. In most states, almost every state, it's a ceremonial office where you run as a ticket with the governor. You don't do that here. So you run separately. And so a Republican could win governor and a Democrat could win lieutenant governor or the reverse. Lieutenant governor here not only does the traditional thing, which is takes the place of the governor if he leaves the state or if something happens, he takes that role. But they also run the state Senate here. And so the lieutenant governor appoints all the committees, decides where what bills go to what committees, decides what bills get heard on the floor of the state Senate and decides who gets recognized on the state Senate. So he basically controls legislation. So anything that gets to the governor's desk has to go through the lieutenant governor. So it's an incredibly powerful position. And I'm aware of, of that because I've worked and I have a very good familiarity with the lieutenant governor's job. That's why I'm running for this. I mean, for that particular job, because of how much impact it can have and has had on our state. 
right? Well, and we're going to talk about that in a minute because a lot of the radical things that we're hearing out of Texas are happening in the state legislature level, right? And so the current- Yeah, well, through, 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 the, through the current lieutenant governor, who he has been the main pusher of the, of the crazy stuff. Right. So that's Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Now, for those listening out there, you may be like, oh, that sound names, is that guy on ESPN? Well, who is Dan Patrick? But no, he's this, <laughs> he's this guy in Texas, and you will be familiar with him, dear listener, because at the outset of the pandemic, he declared on TV that old people should be willing to die from COVID so that we can keep the stores open, right? Because the economy uh, is first and foremost, and old people, you know, they've lived a good life. Let them die. So uh, I remember I, uh, I called my parents to ask them if that was true, and they said definitively no. But uh, tell us about your opponent for a minute. Um, you know, he is, it was safe to say that he is a Trumpist. Oh, yeah. Well, I think he's actually taken the Trumpist, Trumpian stuff to a step further. So he, he's a former sort of shock jock radio guy from Houston that got elected to the state Senate and then got elected to the lieutenant governor. He was sort of the canary in the coal mine of where the Republican Party was going. The fact that he was able to win with his sort of very radical out completely out of the mainstream positions on this. He then entered office and the governor, Governor Abbott was there. Governor Abbott was always a sort of a traditional conservative, sort of calming business oriented conservative. But by virtue of Dan Patrick's presence, the governor has gone way further than anybody would have thought he would have gone. He's been pushed by that because Dan Patrick really represents the Republican Party in Texas today and all of its elements. Dan Patrick is not only the one that said that about COVID and it's denied COVID. He's also the one that tried to push a bathroom bill through that the House Speaker that was a Republican was able to kill, which is this whole idea of transgender couldn't use bathrooms. I mean, that wasn't able to happen. He was also the one that pushed the anti-Roe versus Wade bill through. He was also the one that pushed the openly carry handguns without a permit or a training. He got that through. And so all of the sort of most cruel, I would say, and and mean-spirited legislation that's ended up on the governor's desk is all Dan Patrick's doing. Right. So that's important because he's basically the gatekeeper through which all this crazy has been passing that we're reading about in our national newspapers and why everybody's paying attention to Texas. Now, uh, we should note, just sidebar here, that um, there's going to be a Democratic nomination. You know, uh, you've got to run against another Democrat, Mike Collier, before. And he... Uh, ran against Patrick before, and he, you know, he was running kind of on the coattails of Beto O'Rourke's run against Cruz, and he benefited from that to some degree and came within a hair's breadth of, of uh, you know, winning, but but he lost. Um, that's not nothing. You have to face this guy first, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no opponent in any race is nothing, uh, especially you know, obviously for a first-time candidate. Even though I obviously have a long history of running and winning races on both sides of the aisle. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mention focus or talk about my democratic opponent. I've, I've made a commitment that I'm not going to attack them. I'm not going to go negative on them. I don't care what they do. Uh, no matter how much baiting people do to sort of make that happen, I'm not going to do it. My goal is to spend the next 390 plus days telling the truth about Dan Patrick and showing the democratic voters here in the primary which will be next year in March or April, uh, that I share their values. Uh, but I'm also a candidate that can take it to, take the fight to Dan Patrick and win. So 
Um, Mike Collier would be, if he was to win, would be, who's my Democratic opponent right now, uh, would make a much better lieutenant governor than Dan Patrick. Uh, but I'm not going to, um, my whole race is about removing Dan Patrick. And that's what I want the Democrats in the state to focus on. Yeah. You know, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, and you've obviously read this, uh, same as I have, that this idea of Texas being kind of the, you know, the center of the action when it comes to the Democratic situation, let's say. Uh, you mentioned that transphobic kind of law that that Dan Patrick just uh, tried to get through, and that was the subject, in, in fact, of a column in the Times today by Charles Blow, Texas, harbinger of doom. Quite a headline. But, you know, what do you think of that? That idea that what's happening in Texas kind of is, you know, Florida, obviously, and other states are looking at Texas and thinking about how can we do what they're doing and get some of those laws, you know, plowed through. But uh, but on a sort of uh, a greater you know, national level, how much is, do you think that's true? I think it's incredibly true. I think Texas is the pivot point for either the bad that will spread or keep spreading uh, that has been seen in our country over the last five years, not only bad specific policies on culture and all of those, but sort of the anti-democratic, small d democratic stuff that's happened. Um, Texas passed a restrictive voting rights bill in the course of that. Um, even though we rank 50th in ease of voting, they made it even harder, even though we're dead last in voting. And so I think Texas is determinative of, is this going to keep going down this road and going to be worse? Or if Texans are able to push back in the course of this race and defeat some of this, I actually think it can have the opposite effect and stop that spread if it's able, if we're able to win here uh, against this. And so I actually think it's the most important, it will be the most important state in the union next year in the 2022 elections, because if the Republicans are able to win here after all they've done, it's only going to get worse in other states. If they lose here, it means that other states, other people in other states will have a give, given some incentive to push back. Uh, so I actually think it's the most crucial state and it probably will be the biggest part of the national conversation next year. Yeah. You know, for a long time, people have been saying Texas is trending blue and it's going to take at any minute, right? I mean, Beto O'Rourke was supposed to be the flashpoint. We thought this was a thing that was demographically, you know, in favoring the Democratic Party. Why hasn't it happened? Well, Texas, Texas to me is already a purple state, but it doesn't, the, who shows up to vote doesn't reflect the state. And so even with great turnout that we had last time in 2020, which was the highest turnout we've had, 5.7 million people were registered who didn't turn out in that election. 5.7 million people registered and didn't turn out in that election. And so the electorate right now in the general election doesn't look like Texas. Now that's the responsibility of me now as a candidate and then voters and activists and anybody involved is to make sure, well, who votes looks like the rest of the state. If, if the electorate looks like Texas, Democrats can win. If it doesn't, then it makes it much harder. And so that's a combination of both demographics and increasing the turnout among African-Americans and Asian-Americans and uh, Hispanic Americans, women and men, but also ideologically. Right now, it it's doesn't reflect Texas. The general election doesn't reflect Texas ideologically. That will happen at some point. I'm hoping to make it happen in 2022. 
But that's the problem in Texas. It's not, I, I believe, fully believe that the vast majority of Texans are good and decent people who can't stand what's going on. But the question is, is will they show up? And and that's not only up to me, but it's up to them and people involved in this. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15 for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. And the two kind of structural issues, of course, are there's the gerrymandering that has taken place over a long period of time, uh, you know, redistricting in favor of Republicans. And then you've got voter disenfranchisement, which they've put into law. Well, and they had already put those. There was already laws. And the reason why what they did didn't cause us to go to 50, the stuff they had done before uh, had caused us to go to 50. All of the things about registration requirements long before the voting takes place. ID requirements that they have, uh, insane requirements to do an absentee by mail in this state, which is just basically you have to be almost in a hospital bed or closed in your home in order to vote by mail here uh, in this. The restrictions, they just added on to the restrictions that already were already making it difficult. Right. So what are some of the ideas percolating up from the Democratic brain trust nowadays to counter that? Well, I think you have to recruit and get good candidates on the ballot who can speak to Texans, all Texans. And I think that's part of this. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, I had a fear and have a fear for democracy in this small d democracy in this moment. And I think Democrats, we as Democrats must enunciate that, why that matters. And more than just a theoretical problematic thing, but just practical real world application of losing your democracy and losing the ability that the majority rules which I think we're already there. I mean, we have a tyranny of the minority here now, and we have a tyranny of minority in many states. And so one, making the conversation about what it really means, why this really matters, why when you have this system in place where people aren't held accountable through the vote and aren't made responsible for it, then they just do bad policies because they think they can't lose. Um, it's like, it's what happens in most monopolies and we're a monopoly political state, which is, is corruption it breeds, incompetence is there and inefficiencies take place and usually bad decisions are made. That's where we are in this state. And so I think part of it is having candidates that can make that argument, but also having a real conversation. Policy matters, but policy only matters in relation to values. And it has to be a values-based argument uh, for Texans of why you should vote these folks out and why the values you all believe in as kids that you were raised on as kids or raised your kids on, you should expect in our leaders. And so it's all of those things run in a different way. And that's that's the argument I'm going to make. That's the what I'm going to try to push the Democrats to lead on here in that way. And I think if we do that, we have a real shot winning statewide, but then we could pick up down ballot races in state legislature that we normally otherwise might have lost. And so I think that is, you know, that is a big reason why I am running. Yeah. Well, one of the big challenges in, you know, 
is you're talking about these values, and I I can imagine what you're talking about, and I'm sure you have specific ideas. But one of the things we were talking about last week was people are already talking about 2022, of course, and that's what we're doing here today. But like, uh, how much do you think your um, fortunes are tied to the Biden administration and how much success they have? I mean, I'm, we're looking at these, you know, spending and social uh, program bills that they haven't been able to get through. There's this division in the party. And on some level, you got to get through that and then have some successes and things you can show that says, you know, that as Democrats, we have a vision and we can succeed on the vision. How much do you feel like your own fortunes are tied to Biden? And so I, I think I have three things about that. And first is we don't know exactly where Biden will be next October, right? And that's what matters, not where he is in October of 21. 2021, but where he is in October of 2022. So let's first where he stands then and what's happened in the next 12 months in that way and where we are as a country. That's first. Secondly, there is a lot of evidence right now that people are separating where their view of Biden between what's going on in their state. The California recall results were evidence of that, that the Democrats overperformed Biden's number by seven or eight points on election day because people were concerned about their state and what was going on in their state. We'll see some more evidence of that. We'll see what happens in Virginia and the election in Virginia. But right now, there is a, there's a separation between somebody's view of Biden, and it's true in Texas, where Biden is right now unpopular, but he's about the same level of unpopularity as the current governor in this state. And so it's not as if people are like, I don't like Biden, I'm going to support the Republicans in my state. People are upset at the Republicans at a state level or in, in the local community. And so one, as I say, we'll see where things stand. But two is, is I don't necessarily believe, as it always has been in year past, I think the Republicans have done so many outrageous things and such bad policy and have hurt so many people, especially here in Texas. I think there's going to be a lot of voters that are going to say, I don't like Biden, but I'm not going to vote for the Republicans that are in office in Texas. Right. Well, you're going to have to give voters some motivation. I mean, a lot of people talk about, can we get people to the polls? Can we get them to care? Right. And I guess there's two ways to do that, to uh, have like a, a hard right freak, like a Larry Elder, you know, there to scare them into getting out to prevent him from coming in and not that they have any great love for Gavin Newsom. Right. And, and by the way, Julian Castro came on here a couple of weeks ago, and this was his case for the possibility of Beto was that if Greg Abbott is facing a Trumpist on the right, like um, Alan West, he's going to have to, uh, maybe he's going to have to start acting crazy to prove uh, that he is crazy enough to be on the Trump team, which therefore scares people into voting for the Democrat, right? I don't know if that's one of your uh, thought patterns, but what do you think of that? Well, I don't know how much crazier they could get than what they've already done. So I don't, it's like the crazy has been pushed to a whole new levels of awful policies. I mean, they just now recently, the governor and lieutenant governor are now pushing this. We're forbidding businesses in our state from having vaccine mandates. Yeah. Uh, they already pushed through not allowing citizens to have mask mandates here, mm -hmm. which the vast majority of Texans are opposed to those policies. I always was brought up with the, a conservative Republican party that said, we want local control and we want to leave businesses alone. They're abandoning that whole idea. We're going to, they're basically saying, we're going to tell businesses what to do and, and tell cities and counties what to do. And we're going to take that power to ourselves as the state. And so I, I think Texans 
are already upset about the policies that were pushed through, but they're also upset about what wasn't done. Like we had a failed electric grid. Nothing was fixed on it. Mm-hmm. We're about to go through another cold winter. Um, we're about to, we'll go through another hot summer next summer. People's utility bills will rise because they made it easier for utility companies and energy companies to charge consumers more. That's all they did. They didn't require weatherization or anything. And so I think there's a whole series of things that just all you have to do is remind Texans about failed leadership and about the incompetency and about they've spending all their time on this culture stuff, which you don't like, uh, dividing people and treating people without respect or dignity while they're not tending to the big issues that face the state. And I think that's, I mean, that, that I think will be my argument. I assume if Beto runs, that will be Beto's argument is basically point to them and say, we've had no leadership and we've suffered as Texans and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, like give us a chance. Right. And just to, uh, I want to kind of uh, amend what I said earlier is that Julian Castro's notion was also that Greg Abbott might not even be the nominee um, or if he somehow can't fend off the Allen West of the world, right? And I would, I don't know if you agree with this, but my analysis is that part of his emphasis on not allowing mask mandates and, you know, vaccine mandates is that were he to bend on that, that would give Alan West an opening. Like they're basically, this is his proof that he's crazy, uh, <laughs> that by not- Yeah, and he has two, and he has two Republican opponents right now are come from the very far fringes right. of the party, Don Huffines and Alan West. Right. And Alan West is already lambasting him and taking credit for the crazy that he's done in the last week, uh, taking credit for the Greg Abbott's. I still believe, you know, Greg Abbott has- whatever, 35 million, $40 million in the bank, and he's got cash on hand. I still believe he gets through it. Um, he's well enough liked among Republican primary voters. I mean, I don't know, but I, I assume that he's going to win the election and win it without a runoff in this, but it certainly had an influence in making him worse on policy. Right. Can Beto beat him? He can beat him, um, but he has to make it about The race has to be about Greg Abbott. If the race is about Beto O'Rourke, Beto can't win. If the race is about Greg Abbott, then he's got a real shot to win the governor's race. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, which would be a a kind of a different race than the one he ran against Ted Cruz. He needs to run a different race than he ran against Ted Cruz. I mean, he did a great job and he turned out a lot of people and I think he'll do that. But this needs to be a race that's almost exclusively an indictment on the leadership in Austin. It, it, he needs to spend every day. I, t- he and I talked and I had a conversation with him and I told him if there's a day I don't talk about how awful Dan Patrick is, it's a bad day for me. Right. So every day I'm going to talk about, and I think he needs to do the same thing with Greg Abbott. So, you know, to the degree Texas um, is emblematic of the challenges and the opportunities in the Democratic Party. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the conversation that's been rolling around. Uh, maybe you've been reading about David Shore, this Democratic consultant, data analyst, who's making a case that the Democrats need to move more to the center, basically away from critical race theory, identity politics, and kind of warning that if they don't, if they don't kind of find the voters in the middle, uh, that they're going to be in the wilderness for up to a decade, and then you know the boogeyman's going to come back and we're going to live in a fascist dictatorship, right? This is, this is the cascade of fears in the Democratic Party. And I just want to read something that he said. 
Democrats should do a lot of polling to figure out which of their views are popular and which are not popular. And then they should talk about the popular stuff and shut up about the unpopular stuff. Uh, so do you agree with that? Well, I, I mean, not really, actually. I think, I mean, I agree that Democrats, we as Democrats should talk about what's important to people, what's going on in their lives and what's important to them in a way that resonates with them. But I actually think candidates should be authentic to themselves. And if they have a particular issue that they care about, that they want to relate to the voters, they should they should talk about it. But I think it's less of an issue set and more of a conversation. Voters don't fundamentally vote on issues. They vote on values. And issues are indicators for what your values are. And so my idea and what I'm going to show is we can talk about values and win. We can talk about integrity. We can talk about public service. We can talk about the common good. We can talk about you know treating everybody with respect and dignity. And then you can give examples on issues of why the Republicans don't align with you on values and why you do. And so anybody that goes out there and polls and says, I got these three, I'm going to talk about these three because I polled on these three, even though I want to talk about these three, is a campaign that's bound for failure uh, in it. I think you need to be, as I think, authentic to yourself. But I think the biggest problem is talking about values more and not 10-point policy plans. Well, the subtext of what he's saying, it's not even the subtext, it's the text, is that, you know, the Democratic Party has always been a coalition party. Uh, that includes some percentage of white, but also black, Hispanic, you know, minorities, Asian Americans, and other groups. And that in the last election, in the one before, Trump was able, and Trump-aligned candidates were able to pull some of you know traditional, you know, Democratic voters, and especially Hispanic voters, over to the Republican side, and that this bleed is dangerous for one. And a lot of it had to, the, the, the theory was that focusing too much on uh, Black Lives Matter or, you know, identity politics was alienating a crucial percentage and then creating problems. So, you know, and in Texas where demographically the trending towards blue, part of it is people coming from other states. Part of it is um, the Hispanic vote. Is that something that Democratic candidates like yourself in Texas are looking at or worried about. So what happens in these things, when these, as you know, what happens in these races is, is that the Republicans do a really good job of branding Democrats in a way that may or may not be related to the actual Democrat that's sitting in front of them, right? Um, and Democrats often have a hard time separating themselves up in a given state that they're, you know, they're a Democrat, but they're a version of a Democrat that isn't somebody from the Bronx or isn't somebody from Connecticut or isn't somebody from California. Um, that's why I keep telling people I'm running as a Bob Bullock and Richards, Texas Democrat. That's who I am. You could talk all you want about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They have nothing to do with me uh, in this race. And I'm running, we may align on values, but what they say and what they do has nothing to do with who I am in this race. Um, and I, again, I just want to show Democrats that there's a way to run as a Texas Democrat that, again, you can share values for with all other Democrats in the nation, but have different ways you talk to people and different emphasis. And on the Hispanic, it is a growing concern uh, of us as Democrats to win. 
part of it has to do with the inability for Democrats to talk from a faith perspective. Um, and that I think has been a real missed opportunity for a lot of Democrats. They, I think some just worry about talking about it because they're going to offend somebody. I'm a person of deep faith. I go to an interdenominational Christian church here where we talk about the gospels and what it means about helping the stranger and feeding the poor and helping the homeless and all of that. And it sort of pushes me towards a series of policies where government can be an active role in helping people in this and should, um, as we're called to do. But I think many times, especially in the Hispanic community, where faith is a very important part of it, that conversation never takes place of how you can be a person of faith and be pro-choice, which is what I am, how you can say that the decision needs to be left to the woman um, and her doctor and not, you know, not determined by the state government. So, but I think you have to have a language of faith. And if you think about the most successful democratic politicians nationally, in the last 50 years, all of them could talk in a language of faith. I mean, LBJ was great at it. Jimmy Carter was great at it. Bill Clinton was almost a, like a minister in the way he talked about it. Barack Obama had a language of faith. I mean, all of the successful Democrats, Joe Biden is a man of deep faith. All of the ones that have been very successful have understood that uh, a big part of the American public wants to understand that aspect of you. Tell me though, just to go back to something you said, and I think that's interesting what you're saying because that is one of those issues, faith and and, and religion, that is um, important to a lot of Hispanic voters. There's a lot of Catholic Hispanic voters in Texas, and you know that has not been a place that Democrats have you know spoken directly all the time. But what? For those of us, uh, you know, I'm 50. I knew I know who Ann Richards is, but uh, and I'm from Texas, as I point out occasionally on this podcast. But um, uh, what does that mean to you to be an Ann Richards Democrat? Um, I think it, what it means is is that we have a set of values that we think government ought to serve uh, the state as a whole. That ought to serve everybody. That we believe in openness and transparency. We think that diversity is an important part of this. We also know that there are certain traditions and elements of Texas like faith, uh, like guns, like rural communities um, that are very important here. Um, even though we've become in a more urban and suburbanized state, the rural and small towns are incredibly important to Texas values. Um, you know, that's all of those things in a very, you know, it's funny as you think about it, Ann Richards was a, in 1990 was a very progressive Democrat. But she could relate to Texans at their sort of at their level. Uh, you know, she would go out and do hunts, and she would go and you know she knew how to you know talk to folks and you know in Texarkana, Texas, and she knew what was going on in their lives in a way that she didn't look down at them. And it's sort of it's it's a it's not sort of non elitist approach to that. Working people in Texas, you know, are pretty good about where their lives are. And if given the opportunity to make decisions and the right information, they'll make the right choice. Um, and they should make that choice. Government has an important role, but we don't believe in huge government operations, uh, that people should be helped through hard times, but then left to make their own decisions. Yeah. You know, when I think about you having once been in the Bush administration, he was originally, he ran, as we all know, as a compassionate conservative. And uh, by today's standards, he'd probably be, you know, a Democrat based on like, you know, the, the trend lines in his own party. And we know that George W. Bush is no fan of Trump. 
I'm just curious, have you reconnected with him? Uh, I haven't talked to him. Uh, I mean, I've talked to people around him. I haven't talked to him since I broke publicly with him in 2007. Yeah. But uh, but there must be other um, Bush alumni who uh, you've kept in touch with over the years, I take it. And what- what I have. Yeah. What have they, uh, are they, have they been surprised by your uh, turn into politics as a candidate? I I would say it's a combination of surprised and like actually grateful, like, because they have the same feeling I do about the leadership in Texas. Many of the Bush alums do. I mean, many of the Bush alums didn't like Ted Cruz when he, how he surfaced and ran uh, in his time in 2016 and 2018. So I think they were surprised that I would take the step because most of the time, somebody that has worked on campaigns doesn't make that leap. It's, it's, that's not, you know, I think some people think like, you've seen all the bad of it. Why would you do that to yourself? Uh, you know, your life is good. Why would you step into that? You're going to get all of the bashed and all of the stuff that's going to happen. And, and I'm doing it just out of my belief in public service. And we're at a crucial moment. But I actually think they're very grateful that I'm willing to make that challenge. And many of them are going to support me. Yeah, publicly? Some will support me publicly. Some who are still involved in the Republican primary trying to make trying to reform them, which I've made the argument is impossible until they're beaten. I think the only way the Republicans get reformed is if they're beaten badly and then they'll have an incentive to reform. Right now, they have no incentive to reform other than what's moral or right, yeah. which doesn't seem to be a big incentive for change for them. So some will support me publicly and some will do it privately. Yeah. Just as a, you know, this is a bit of a hypothetical, but you're not in touch with George W. Bush. What, let's just say George W. Bush decided to advocate on your behalf for, for one reason or another. What would that, what would, what does his name mean in Texas today, in Texas politics? Do people uh, still like him? Um, he's actually liked by independents and Democrats more so than by Republicans today. Yeah, um, I mean, he's liked by a good share of Republicans, but you, if you... I mean, the last poll I saw on George W. Bush, he was more unpopular among Republicans here uh, than he was among independents here. I think generally now in the aftermath of Trump, I think many people are reflecting on like, man, we didn't, we thought that we didn't agree with all of that, man, but it was much better than what happened with Trump in that. Um, I think it is the where he is on people's consciousness since he stepped back. I think people, many people were really glad when he spoke up at that speech on the anniversary of 9-11 um, and said his thing about domestic terrorism and all of that's rising here. We're very happy about that. I think he's generally liked if you talk to just average sort of people. Uh, yeah, you know, he decent guy, made mistakes, um, decent guy. Um, that was a Republican. I, I wish there were more Republicans like that today. But I think right now <laughs> you could get that answer. You get a positive answer more from independents than you could from Republicans today about George W. Yeah. Well, it sort of shows you what what's happened in the interim. Let me ask you this: What, looking at Joe Biden, what's your grade on on Joe Biden today? Um, what's my grade on Joe Biden? I, I, I would, it'd be a multiple grade. I'd be a teacher that'd have to give a multiple grade, and so I would give him a B on uh, overall on many things of what he's done. I think he's stayed true to who he was. I, I think he's underestimated the cooperation he would get from the Republicans. I think he thought he could move them to a different place, like they would go back to the way they were when he was in the United States Senate. I think he, uh, I, I don't think, uh, I think he was 
wrong about that. I, I don't think he fully understood who the Republican Party had fundamentally become and that defeating Donald Trump wasn't the end of what the problem was. It was only the beginning of the problem, as I think he's seen. Um, I actually would give him an A on the decisions he made on Afghanistan. He made a really tough choice and he was the first of the four presidents to actually do what he said he was going to do and, and do it in a way um, that I think was as best as possible under the circumstances of that he was involved in. And then I would give him an incomplete on some things. I mean, obviously we don't have all of the infrastructure stuff and we don't have the things to help Americans with their lives. It's still not been decided, not necessarily because of him, but because of the dynamics of the Senate and all of that. But I, I think that's still an incomplete on that regard. Yeah. Well, what I was saying in the podcast last week was that in the midterms next year, Democrats need something to sell. You know, they need to be able to point at some things and say, look what our party got done in Congress. Look what our country can get done when we're effective executives. And here we are with the spending and the social programs basically stuck. And we know all about the split in the party with Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. But if you could like get into a room with Joe Biden at this moment and advise him on how to get through this imp impasse, how to get something on the board here, because it, it's going to benefit you as a candidate as well and all the candidates across the board. What would you tell him if you could get him in that room and just say, hey, here's the game plan. Here's what we're going to do. Well, I don't, I mean, maybe there's been a lot of people that have given them the same thing. I don't know if it'd be like, okay, they've keep telling me that you, I know you're telling me the same thing. So I don't know. Uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, what I would say to him is, is that you have to look at the world for, you have to look at the political system today for what it is, not what you want it to be. And now you can have a dream or a vision of what you want it to be, but you got to deal with the political world you're in. That no matter what they say or do, the Republican Party is not going to be an enlightened party and are not going to be enlightened individual, individuals that are going to be moved by facts, science, or an appeal to their moral, you know, uh, compass. It's not going to happen. It's just not, it does not exist. And so the, whatever decisions you make legislatively, you ought to make them under the auspices of looking at it as reality and not as what you would like it to be or what you remember it to be, but it is with reality and make decisions based fundamentally on that. And that I think would then adjust, you know, where you stand on the filibuster, which I believe should be gotten rid of. It's, uh, it's, it's an insane that we, that we're, the filibuster is actually stopping us from preserving our democracy as opposed to, uh, preserving our democracy by ending it. Um, but there's a whole series of things in this moment accepting the politics of the Republicans in reality will actually give you a clearer path moving forward, in my view. Right. Well, two of those, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are you know, nominally on the Republican side in so much as they are uncooperative. So in a way, and they're all, you know, their sort of bottom line seems to be a bottom line. They're like, we want spending to be less. So what kind of what you're saying is just accept the less spending and just get something on that works. I mean, while you have, well, the I actually think uh, here's what I, and I don't know fully and I'm not in the room and I always tend to judge. And I really like Joe Biden and I think he's doing great for the country in so many different ways. I think sometimes that those two people individually, if you looked at the Republicans and fought them in from a place of reality, that where those two land might it might change based upon your 
engagement. As long as we keep talking about we need bipartisanship, it empowers them to do what they've been doing. And if you end the thing like, we're just going to do what's right, and Republicans are completely off the deep end, there's no point in having negotiations, there's no point in this, which is where we are. Only thing negotiations do is, is keep delaying stuff, and they know that. Mitch McConnell knows that. To me, I love bipartisanship, but bipartisanship is a process to get to a good end. If the idea of bipartisanship is getting in the way to get to a good end, then you should throw it out. Bipartisanship is a process to get to something good, which any other time, if you had a trusted partner, you could do. But without a trusted partner, bipartisanship doesn't work. Right. So basically, you're like, here you are, Joe Biden, in the Democratic Congress. Obviously, you have a split inside your own party, and there's a lot of debate and fractiousness there. But this is the moment when you're having when you have power, and it's going to, you know, potentially bleed away in in the fall of 2022. If he's not able to get these big legislation passed and we mm-hmm. arrive next fall, that's going to be a bit of a burden on you too, right? And all Democrats, because there's going to be this, you know, I'm just, you know, looking yeah, out ahead. I know. I, I'm, I'm, that's I'm a different campaign. Here. It's a different campaign that you'll be running than the one you would be running if they were successful. Well, Biden will never be, no matter how popular he gets, he'll never be over, he'll never be popular. He'll never have 50% or 55% support in Texas. So they're always going to, it's going to be people that I need to appeal to, to win in Texas that don't like Joe Biden, but also don't like the Republican leadership. So he'll never, it's not a like a state like, you know, you know, Nevada or Virginia or some other state that that is an important factor. He's not going to get to that, what that level here. That's also the rationale that I don't understand the moderates or somebody that represents a purple state or a slightly red state. By not helping Biden, they endanger themselves first. I mean, the first ones to get defeated in a in a Biden problematic presidency isn't, you know, the progressives in a blue state or a blue district. It's a moderate that represents a swing district. So the more they had caused Biden to be less successful, the first person in line to get voted out is them. Right. And That's think, why I don't understand. Yeah. It. I don't, I mean, I'm it confused too. And I, but I see that their logic is it's the opposite that if they allow the success to take place and it's a, it's too progressive, then they get killed. <laughs> and if they, there's no evidence, there's absolutely no evidence in a previous election cycle that helping the incumbent president of your party who then becomes more popular overall doesn't help them. The actual, every bit of evidence is the exact reverse of what their thinking is. But I know they constantly get in this thinking of like, oh, I'm going to show that I'm, you know, this and I'm going to stand up and all of that. But what it does is if, if Biden fails, as I say, he becomes unpopular in their districts first and they become, their reelection becomes problematic. Yeah. So uh, have you talked to uh, Beto O'Rourke? Recently? Yes, a number of times. Yeah. And I imagine you guys are, uh, you know, kind of uh, doing a little strategizing and looking out at the world and deciding, like, uh, you know, what are, are we seeing the same thing here? I mean, I've, I've been friends with Beto a while. And so I've talked to him off and on the last um, four or five years. And I mean, I know Beto, if he's going to run, he's trying to put together whatever his effort will look like and however he's going to do that. Um, I mean, I told him that I was thinking about it in this and what I was going to do. And so, as I said, 
earlier, he, if he's on the ticket, if he's the nominee for governor and I'm the nominee for lieutenant governor, you know, we will, we're, we know each other, we're friends. And so it'll be a ticket that is coordinated in many ways. And so, um, and I think we both have spent enough time in Texas and looked at Texas and been through elections in Texas that we both have a pretty good understanding of Texas. Yeah. Um, the uh, Matthew McConaughey wildcard notwithstanding. Yeah. And I don't think, I think Beto, I mean, I don't know where Beto is on that, but by my view on that, that was, that was a conversation that was, you know, somewhat frivolous by Matthew McConaughey that never has never gotten fully serious uh, as evidenced by his answers on many things. And there's probably consultants or people involved that wanted him to run because they wanted a place in this, but I don't expect Matthew McConaughey to run. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite Matthew McConaughey movie? <laughs> My favorite Matthew McConaughey. I liked Lincoln Lawyer, actually. I mean, I know it was one of those weird movies, but I thought he did a good job in that movie. Um, the one, what was the one that I can't remember the name, the one in the South where he defended uh, in the South. All right. One of those um, John Grisham uh, movies. Yeah. The yeah. Trial or one of those yeah, movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it wasn't Dazed and Confused. Dazed and Confused is not on my favorite movie list, even though it was filmed not far from here in Central <laughs> Texas. It wasn't on my favorite Matthew McConaughey movie. Um, well, be careful. You got to uh, keep the Linklater um, constituency on your side there, Matthew. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That was a great movie. The Boyhood movie. Did you see Boyhood? I yeah, loved it. Movie. In fact, uh, as a person who grew up in Texas, I felt incredible affinity for that movie, and it echoed a lot of themes in my own upbringing. Yeah, so I, felt- I love the I love the scene when they were sitting out at Big Bend at you know at the end. It was great. Yeah, well done. I mean, just obviously the concept of filming that over that number of years was well done. Yeah. Well, listen. Um, two things I want to say here to close. Thank you. Uh, very much for uh, coming on the podcast, Matthew Dowd. All eyes are on Texas. You're at the front lines of this thing, and we'll be paying very close attention to what happens in the next year, your campaign and your message and uh, how it's going to all shape up given the national trends and the state trends. Um, I also want to mention that uh, you mentioned Big Bend National Park. Uh, it's my favorite national park uh, in uh, America. And uh, I shouldn't even say that on this podcast because I don't want it to get crowded, but it's a beautiful place. And Texas is a beautiful place, despite what uh, some of our listeners may, you know, they hear the word and they want to like run away because it seems like such a, a, a kind of um, political nightmare there. But it is a beautiful state and a great place. And uh, I, I love it personally. So um, I'm glad to talk to another Texan. Uh, thank you for coming on. And I hope we can talk again on this podcast. Me too. Great to be here. And if folks want to come, they can come to the Wimberley, where the state headquarters of our, which we're at the edge of the hill country, which I think is one of the most beautiful spots as it moves from here west. It's with the rivers and creeks and, and all the way to Big Bend. It's, I, I, I think Texas is a gorgeous state. I love it too. That's why... I came here more than 37 years ago and stayed. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks again, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks, man. Take care. And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Matthew Dowd, for coming on Inside the Hive. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast possible. If you liked what you heard, hit subscribe. Come back next week and support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.